This morning's uh, scripture reading is from the the Gospel of Luke, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 63, and we're going to continue into chapter 23, verse 12. Now, if you're using the Bible or you'd like to use one of the Bibles uh, to look at this in the chair rack, then this uh, passage starts on page 1123. Uh, The words are going to be up on the screen as I read, and so you'll be able to follow along that way as well. Now, last week, uh, if you were here last week, we studied after all how after all the plotting, all the scheming, Jesus is finally arrested. We're in, we're, we're in the Gospel of Luke in this last week of Jesus' life, in this last day of Jesus' life, this most consequential 24-hour period in the history of the world. And now things are finally coming to the climax, right? the final showdown, if you will. So let me ask you, if you're able, to, to stand as I read this. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that, that this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to, forgive, to, to, to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Who are you? You ever ask that question, right? The identity question. Identity is a very common term today in the world. Everybody has an identity to form, an identity to recognize, right? How do you identify, right? Very common, very uh, uh, familiar kind of phraseology in the world in which we live. Well, at the heart of Christianity is an identity question, and that's the identity of Jesus. This is about as fundamental as it gets. Jesus is put on trial here on several occasions, Right? There's, about, there's three of them, three trials, three examinations that happen here. And at the heart of each of them is this question of identity. Who is this man? Now, to be fair, in each of these 
trials, and each of them to differing degrees, those who are asking the questions of Jesus, they aren't really seeking his honest answer. They don't really want his honest answer. They all have their own agenda. They all want to lead this somewhere. But the question of Jesus' identity, though it may not have been for the people who were asking him the questions here, the question of Jesus' identity is a very appropriate inquiry. It is the right question to ask. And for each of us, we can use these proceedings that we read about to make an honest inquiry. So that's what we're going to do. As we read through this, there's really four terms, four titles attached to Jesus, and each of them has extremely significant meaning. Each of them are terms that Christians use and throw around all the time. And so it's really important for us to understand how does Jesus understand them and how do they identify who he is. Now, those four terms are listed for you in your bulletin, and we're going to walk through them. Now, there is one, there is one thing that he is viewed as that he absolutely rejects, and we'll talk about that at the end. There's four things that he accepts and one thing that he absolutely rejects. Now, let's look at the first one. The first one is found in verse 67 in the question that's posed to him by the council of the Jewish elders. They ask, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, this would be a logical thing for the Jewish elders to want to have clarified. This was their job, right? Christ, of course, is just the, it's just the Greek term for the, the word Messiah. The two, are, the two terms are exactly synonymous. They're interchangeable. They're asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Right? This would have significant meaning to the, to the Jews. This term, Messiah, would have significant meaning to them. It literally means the anointed one. And it refers to a promised rescuer who was sent by God, who would be sent by God to to, to aid God's people. Now, at the time that Jesus is encountering these religious leaders, at this time in Israel, the term would have had and would have come to have taken on a more political meaning. Why? Well, because the people of Israel were under the, the domination of a foreign power. The Roman Empire was ruling over them, and so they would commonly understand and look for this Messiah, this rescuer, this anointed one, to come and rescue them out of oppression by the Roman government a military leader, a political leader who would overthrow the, uh, the Roman occupation. And perhaps for this reason, Jesus didn't tend to use the term frequently, even though, as we'll see in a second, it certainly applied to him. But to the reader of Luke, right, if you've read Luke's account of Jesus' life all the way up to this point, right, though Jesus may not have always used the term, Jesus has been identified as the Messiah from the very beginning. Right, this is a term that has been, been applied to him. Right? When the angels announced the birth of Jesus, go back to the very beginning, when, Jesus, when the angels announced Jesus' birth, they say to the shepherds out in the field, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ, as the Messiah, the Lord. So from the very beginning, and the term comes over, uh, up over and over again. Even Jesus refers to himself in Luke 20 as he's teaching in the temple courts, refers to himself as the Christ, the son of David. So he calls himself the Messiah. The angels, the, the prophet Simeon, the demons, the disciples, Jesus himself, they all knew that this term applied to Jesus. But here, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't fall into the trap that's being laid for him. He actually, he, did you see it? He kind of refuses to answer the question head on. Look, at how, look how Jesus responds at the end of verse 67 and 68. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you will not answer. Now, does that, does that seem childish to you? Right? I'm not going to tell you. I mean, is that kind of how it comes across? Actually, it's not. 
Right? Jesus was the Messiah, and that's true, and he didn't actually, he didn't deny it, but, it, but he was the Messiah, and he knew he was the Messiah in such a radically different way than the expectation of the Jewish leaders that he tells them that if he said that he was, they wouldn't believe him anyway, right? even if he were to explain it. In other words, to the Jewish leaders, it really isn't going to make a bit of difference what he says. On multiple occasions, Jesus had asked questions of the Jewish leaders. He had asked them questions, but they gave him no answer. So he's saying that if he attempted to turn the question on them, like he does with, with Peter, when Peter asks, are you, know, you're the Christ, are you the Messiah, right? And Jesus turns the question on, on Peter back in that instance and says, well, who do you say that I am, right? He knows that if he does that with the Jewish leaders, it's not going to have any effect. It would just be useless to enter into a, a pointless debate with them. Now, if the question had been sincere, Jesus would have answered it. But it wasn't sincere, and so he doesn't. Instead, he moves on, he answers the question by actually using a second descriptive phrase, right? First, first phrase, first identifying uh, a title is the, is the Messiah, but Jesus goes on, look, verse 69, he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, okay? So Jesus doesn't deny that he's the Messiah, but he switches from Messiah to his to his preferred self-label, the Son of Man. He refers to himself over and over again as the Son of Man. It's a term that Jesus used constantly in the course of his ministry. And the brilliance of this term is both in its clarity and in its relative obscurity. Right? This is what I mean. Right? Because the, the, the term Son of Man isn't used that often in the Old Testament. And because of that, Jesus has the ability to use it freely without being misunderstood in the same way that he might have been misunderstood if he used the term Messiah. If he used the term Messiah a lot, people would be like, oh, I know what the Messiah is. Where's your sword? Let's go get Rome. Right? That term was, would have been misunderstood. But Son of Man, oh, now here's a, here's a label that he can use that he's able to, uh, to, to kind of define uh, uh, on his own. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's also a brilliant term in that, in that He's not making it up, right? It, it, it provides great clarity into, into who Jesus is because it is a real term that was used as, as, a, as a reference to the coming Messiah. One of the places it's used, most prominently used, is in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel was a, was, a, was a prophet. He was a servant of God when the people of Israel in the Old Testament were under occupation by a foreign power. And, and, and Daniel, this is what Daniel said, he was talking about someone who would come to rule the kingdom of God. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. That's referring to, to, to God the Father. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so when Jesus takes that term, son of man, right, he's doing at least two things simultaneously. He is simultaneously asserting that he is God and he is man. Because the phrase, the literal phrase, son of man, it just, it just means human being. Right? That's what Daniel's saying. He saw a human being coming from heaven. Okay, fair enough. But, as you heard Daniel kind of describe it, this isn't just any guy coming out of heaven. This isn't just any human being coming. This is a human who, it seems, has authority and glory and power. Who, who get, get this, who was to be worshipped. Now, let me make an observation. 
right? to, to most of the other religious cultures of the day, this would not have been that big of a deal. Okay, human being, you know, okay, worship him. He's a god at the same time as he's human, right? Roman pantheon, Greek gods, right? This was not an uncommon kind of thing. God with a small g, also a man, right? But ancient Judaism, unique in its day, made it very, very clear that there was only one God and that you were to worship this God only, nothing else, no one else. So when Jesus repeatedly goes back to Daniel 7 and calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying without any ambiguity, I'm that guy. I'm the man who has come with authority and the power of God because I'm also God. So he's asserting that he is God incarnate in a human body. Now, secondly, he's also asserting, using this phrase, that there will be a future day when he's going to choose to exercise that authority that is rightfully his, the everlasting dominion that Daniel talked about. Right? Go back to Luke 22, verse 69. You see it right there. Jesus says, he draws the connection. He says, I'm going to be, the Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's just what Daniel was talking about. See, Jesus is declaring to the council of the religious elders, the, the great Sanhedrin, that they might think at this moment that they stand in judgment over him, right? That they're judging him. Who are you? You tell us. You, know, where you answer to me, right? They might think that, they're, that, that, that he's answering to, to them, but there will be a day, he's saying, when it's going to be reversed. Today is their day, but it's not the final day, and it's not the final word. Daniel used the phrase to prophesy a final judgment. Jesus here does the very same thing, and he identifies himself as that son of man. So he's the son of man. Now, the Jewish leaders seem to understand what he was implying by saying this. Because it says in verse 70, are you then the son of God? Right? So they kind of use a phrase that they might have been more familiar with. Are you, are you, are you then the son of God? Now, we have, we have then the third description of Jesus right, in our, in our list. Messiah, son of man, now son of God. Now, this is, to, the, to the, the understanding of the Jewish leaders, right, this would be a bigger deal than simply Messiah, right? At least in the popular Jewish understanding of Messiah at the time, one could have claimed to have been the Messiah without simultaneously claiming deity, right? That, that, was, that, that, that was within their possible explanation. Okay, you're the Messiah. You've come to rescue us. You're the anointed one that God talked about. But some of them might, not, might have said, like, okay, but you don't have to be God. Now, this raises the stakes, this question here. Because this, this, this isn't a new term either in Luke's gospel, right? Luke, just like with the term Messiah, Luke has used this term all, all along to refer to Jesus as well. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be the Son of God? Well, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that Jesus is a physical Son of God the Father, right? That, that the Father somehow had relations with Mary and that's how, how Jesus was, was born. That's actually the historic a teaching of the, of the Mormon church was what many Muslims mistakenly think that Christians mean when they say that term, Son of God, but it's not. When you looked at all the places where that term is used, you see that when Jesus uses that term, Son of God, he's making a claim to be God himself, right? Just like he was when he used the term Son of Man. And we know that that's what Jesus was doing, and we know that that's how it's understood because that's exactly how the Sanhedrin reacts to it. Right? They clearly understood the claim that he was making. They believed that his statement amounted to an admission of deity, right? that he was therefore blaspheming, that he was claiming to be God. Because they say, verse 71, okay, we got what we need. We're done here. 
He's confessed. Look, confessed to what? Confessed to being the promised Messiah, the incarnate Son of Man, and the eternal Son of God. Those are the three we've covered so far. Now, up to this point, the inquiry of Jesus has been primarily looking at his identity from a religious perspective, right? Hasn't it? All right, but now the religious leaders, they face a problem. From their point of view, they have what they need to convict Jesus and to execute justice according to, uh, to, to Jewish law. He's claiming to be God in an open court. That's punishable by death according to Jewish law. It's blasphemy. But here's the interesting thing, the political reality of the time. They need the Romans. So it says in chapter 23, verse 1, that the whole assembly gets up and leads Jesus to Pilate. Now, who's this guy, Pilate? Well, this is Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman governor of Judea. And the Sanhedrin needed him because he was the representative of civil authority. See, how the Romans retained final authority when it came to executing people was this. They would, they would, give, they would give jurisdiction over kind of local matters, right? Filling the potholes and setting the speed limits, right? They would give the local kind of people control over that kind of stuff. Right? That, that was of no major... I mean, it, it was when things got out of hand. It was when order was threatened. That's when the Romans stepped in. And when the taxes weren't being paid. They didn't like that either. Right? That's, when they, that's, when they kind of, that's when they stepped in. Right? But the one thing that they did retain for themselves in terms of administering the laws and stuff of the local lands they occupied was they did retain for themselves the, the, the power to execute capital punishment, the power to execute criminals. Right? And this makes sense, right? Even if you give the locals a measure of local autonomy, you couldn't have them just deciding to execute all the Roman sympathizers. Right? You, they retained that authority for themselves. So in order for the Jewish leaders to execute Jesus, which is what they really want to do, put him to death, they need Pilate's approval. So off to Pilate they go. The problem is the Romans would not have cared one single bit about the charge of blasphemy. Right? blasphemy against the God of the Jews. Whatever. I, you know, fine. I, whatever. Figure it out. Which meant then that the Jewish leaders had to make something up. Something that the Romans would have cared about. Like it says in verse 2. Misleading our nation. Leading the people to oppose Roman rule. Right? Our na- all of a sudden, they're just like, <laughs> they're all in citizens. Now, specifically, they lay out two charges. First, they say that Jesus opposed paying taxes to Caesar, which is a lie, a complete mischaracterization of what he said in Luke chapter 20 when he was directly asked that question. Right? Second thing was that he claimed to be the Messiah, which was in fact true, but the implication of that, so far as what they want to bring before the Roman governor, was that in claiming this title of Messiah, this title of king, as they were kind of putting a uh, political ruler, that in doing that, he was inciting rebellion, political rebellion, which of course was not true. Jesus had specifically told his disciples to put away their swords. That's not why I'm here. Now, it's on this second charge that the Jewish leaders introduced the fourth title of Jesus, a king. It's as if they're helping Pilate understand the meaning of Messiah, because that term might not have been uh, understandable by this, uh, this, this Roman. So they say that he's claiming to be Christ, a king. And just in case you need to know what Christ means Messiah. Essentially, think of it like this, Pilate. He's claiming to be a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he ignores the first charge completely. He goes right to the second one, right? He says, a king. Really? Huh. Are you? Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus responds, you have said so. 
Now, you see how Jesus kind of answers in the same way that he did when he was being asked about the Son of God. He kind of says, you know, you said it. Jesus isn't admitting to, be a king, to be, being a king in the same way that Pilate would have thought or that Pilate would have been concerned about. Not that kind of king, but neither, do you see in the way that he answers, is he denying it. Now, it doesn't mean, didn't mean, what, what Pilate might have thought, that Jesus was a, was a political, political threat. Right? Neither, though, was Jesus denying the, the title of king, because he was. So it's a title Jesus willingly accepts, and it's a title that Jesus has already willingly accepted. When he first rode into Jerusalem, kind of almost a week earlier now, when he first rides into Jerusalem, this last week of his life, he rides in on a donkey. Remember, if you were, we looked at it in January, if you were here. And, and he does it in a very intentional, royal, processional kind of way. And the crowds, they're shouting, they're quoting from Psalm 118, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, he accepts it. He willingly accepts the, the title and the worship as he enters the city. But, interestingly, how does Pilate respond? Look at verse 4. He turns to the chief priest, he turns to the crowd, and he says, I don't find any guilt in this guy. Now, that's interesting, right? Where do you get this? Well, if you get a chance later, go take a look at John chapter 18, verses 33 to 38, right? I mean, there's, there's different accounts, four different accounts. They all complement one another of Jesus's life. And in John's account, in John 18, you see the same incident, but you get a little bit more expanded version of his conversation with, with Pilate. Now, here, Luke just simply cuts right to the, to the main point. But the further dialogue in John actually helps us understand the kind of king that Jesus considered himself to be. Because in John 18, Jesus actually explains a little bit more to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is of another place. Now, maybe because of that, because Jesus did take a little bit more time to explain what kind of kingdom he was really talking about, Pilate's judgment on the substance of the charges, Luke tells us, is not guilty. From Pilate's point of view, case closed. If Jesus is king, it's certainly not the kind of king that he's particularly concerned about. That's where he lands, at least for now. Now, let me ask you, and this is where it becomes really important, right? You can just kind of talk about this in an abstract, historical, theological way. This is who Jesus claims to be, blah, 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 blah. But but where do you land, right? Where are you at the end of all this? We've seen four descriptions, four titles that are used to describe Jesus, Messiah, Son of man, son of God, king of the Jews. And I want us to take note of something here. Why is Jesus on trial? Right? What is the substance of the entire debate that they're having? It is not anything he did, his actions. It isn't really anything he said, his teaching per se. It was his identity. It was who he was claiming to be. Look back at the questions, right? These aren't the questions that you would typically expect of someone accused of a capital crime. Where were you at 2 a.m. on the night of the 13th, right? That's not that kind of question. Jesus is not facing those kinds of questions. He's being asked, who are you? And the claims that are emerging as you kind of go through it are pretty bold. What is Jesus claiming about himself? He's claiming to be the promised, anointed Messiah. He's claiming to be the incarnate Son of God. He's claiming to be the eternal Son of Man. He's claiming to be the reigning King over all things. Now, I told you at the beginning that there was, there was one more view that's sort of put forth in what we read here. Now, admittedly, it's a little bit less overt. It isn't like a title that's attached to him, but it's there, and it's really important. 
Jesus is willing to, under, to, to accept sort of being misunderstood about Messiah and Son of Man and Son of God and King of the Jews, but he will not allow himself to be viewed as simply an amusing curiosity. Now, where do I get that? Right? At the very end of what we read, after Pilate pronounces his initial verdict, not guilty, right? the Jewish leaders press the charges again. They kind of keep pressing. They're not going to let it go. And, and they throw in the fact that Jesus came originally from Galilee. And Pilate, who at this point is likely just tired of the whole thing, he sees an opportunity. He sees a political out here. If Jesus is from Galilee, then maybe he can pass this along to Herod. There's a deal that, Herod, that the Romans often worked out with some of the Roman leaders occasionally, where they would attain, retain ultimate authority, but when it suited them, they could sort of delegate it to a local you know, king. Now, this was not Caesar. King Herod was, was king of the, the area of, of Galilee, but he wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't Caesar. He didn't have ultimate authority, but he, he had a degree of authority, and Pilate kind of says, this is interesting, he's from Galilee. I can just send him to, to Herod. I, I can still retain my kind of ultimate authority, but I don't, I don't need to get involved in the messy details here. So that's what they do. Now, it just so happens, because it's Passover, Herod is in town too. He's here in Jerusalem. This is perfect. Let's take him over to Herod's house. And interestingly, it says... Herod is excited to see Jesus. Why? Jesus, I can't, I, this is so great that you're here. Why? Well, Jesus had become pretty well known in the region. All the miracles, all the healings, all that kind of stuff, a bit of a curiosity. Herod had tried to see Jesus before, actually. Now, now here's his chance. And Herod says, it says he wants to see a sign. And the word sign here is the word that's normally used for the works of Jesus, right? They were typically called signs because they, they pointed to something. They pointed to who he to who he was. But Herod here was not interested in a sign that had meaning. He just wanted a miracle, right? Party trick. Right? He's like, this would be great at my, you know, my, my, my Passover party. Jesus, come on in. Do something, do something cool. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't play along. He doesn't respond. He just stands there. It says in verse 9, Jesus gave him no answer. An answer would have done nothing. Jesus knew that there wasn't any serious inquiry going on here. There's no dialogue that's that's really anything fruitful, right? And this is where you see something about the character of Jesus. Think about this. Pilate had just ceded jurisdiction in the case to, to Herod, right? In effect saying, look, if Herod wants to execute him, I give my blessing, but Herod can make that call, right? Herod was not nearly as interested about the charges the Jewish leaders were making against Jesus, right? He didn't really care so much about theology. He just wanted Jesus to show him a good time. So there was at least the outside possibility here that if Jesus just kind of played along, he could have saved his life, right? Just give Herod what he wants. Become sort of his little court gesture, right? Whatever it takes, make yourself interesting so that he keeps you around, all right? It might be a little humiliating, but if the alternative is you die, maybe it's worth it, right? No, right? To Jesus, it is absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it to be misunderstood, that is. The, the first four identities Jesus accepts, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, King, right? He's willing to die for those. This, 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 this title, this, this, uh, this, this, this name that, that's attributed to him, or this kind of idea of a concept of his identity as just sort of an amusing curiosity, this he absolutely rejects. He will not be the amusing curiosity at Herod's court. And once it appears clear that Jesus wasn't going to be the very much fun, Herod gets bored, right? Because Jesus is no longer interesting and sends him back to Pilate and to his ultimate death. Now, do you see the significance of this? Jesus will die because he willingly accepts the first four titles, but he rejects the fifth. He will not be that fifth. 
Now, what about us? Think about this, right, in an application to yourself. If you're honest, if we're honest, our bent is to do exactly the opposite. Our bent is to practically reject the first four. Now, we say, you know, Christians and stuff will say, oh, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Messiah. But practically, our bent is to reject those first four and actually subconsciously accept or desire the fifth, right? In other words, we're really practically, a lot of the time, not all that interested in admitting that we need a Messiah, certainly not one who demands our submission and our authority. Now, we may not openly mock Jesus like Herod did. Some of you might, but most of you buttoned up religious types and stuff here among us, right? You would be too sophisticated for something like that, right? But practically, we really do act a lot of the time like we want Jesus to just kind of amuse us in our free time, right? Fill in the blanks of life when we've got nothing else to to do, do for us a parlor trick here or there when we command it or otherwise just kind of leave us alone when we want to be left to ourselves and we want to kind of be on the throne. Just leave us alone when we don't want, when we don't need the amusement, right? And then when Jesus refuses to be used that way in our lives, like Herod, we dismiss him from our presence and we send him away. But stop to consider those questions of Jesus again. What if it's true? Right, Jesus' answers, I mean. What if, they're, what if they're true? Think about that. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the incarnate Son of Man, the eternal Son of God, and the ruling King of the Jews. What if that is true, if that's really who he is? I, I remember someone asking me a number of years ago when I was talking to them about the claims of Jesus, these bold, radical claims, and they, and they, and they said to me, and it was a really honest question, or whatever, doesn't that seem a little arrogant to you that Jesus would go around kind of just like, here I am, Messiah? In a way, I mean, I understand where that's coming from. It would seem like that. The person who asked the question was, they were actually getting it. Right? These are pretty bold claims. That's what they got. It was pretty clear. Right? And if you knew someone, think about this, right? If you knew someone in your family or at work in, or at school, and you can probably all picture someone like this, who goes around and says stuff about this, all, you know, about themselves, all arrogant, right? What would be, like, what would be the nicest word you would use to describe them? Right? We could probably think of lots of really bad words to kind of, you know, the arrogant blowhard or whatever who thinks they're all that. We could probably think of lots of nasty words. But one of the terms that we might use that would kind of be a diplomatic, they have a messianic complex. <laughs> right? They view themselves as, as sort of the savior and the, the end of all, of all things. What do we mean? Do we mean that as a compliment when we say that? No, we do not. We mean that this is a person who thinks that they know it all, who thinks they have the answer to every problem. Right? So I would agree with this person who asked me the question. Right? This kind of talk sounds really arrogant. This guy clearly has a messianic complex, and that would be a problem unless, oh wait, actually, that's who he is. Because the reason why we don't use it as a compliment because, to someone that we know is because we know that they're not the, the savior of every problem. We know that they're not, the, the, they're not God. But it would not be the wrong way to describe Jesus. It would not be a derogatory statement if, in fact, it were really true about this guy. And so it forces us, perhaps, into an uncomfortable position because it doesn't allow us to put Jesus into that box of a really good person. You can't do that. It doesn't let, doesn't let you because he's either supremely arrogant, maybe delusional, or he actually is who he is claiming to be, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God the eternal king. He's one or the other. There's no in-between, which means that all of us have to deal with these claims of identity, right? That's the whole point of this trial. We have to submit ourselves to these claims. You have to bow before these claims of this man, right? 
Have you done that? Now, incidentally, there's a sense in which even if you're investigating Christianity, even if you're asking questions about Christianity, there's a sense in which you still need to do that. And we encourage that here, right? Honest investigation about the identity of, of Jesus. But note that there is a difference between honestly examining the claims of Jesus and kind of saying, oh, I'm not quite sure I'm, I'm there yet. There's a difference between honest inquiry in that sense and putting Jesus on trial. The first approach, where we just kind of say, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to figure it out. That indicates a level of humility. The second approach, where you put Jesus on trial, say, Jesus, you got to answer to me, right? That assumes that you're the one who's sitting on the throne in judgment over Jesus. And the first way, the one of humility, of honest inquiry, that's the way to ask these questions. And what I'd submit to you is that even if you're searching for the truth, the sheer magnitude of these claims that Jesus makes here about his identity, they force you to approach him with humility, Right, think about it like this. One just final illustration as we kind of close. All right, imagine you lived in, um, in London shortly after the Second World War. And remember, in London, for, uh, for a few years during the war, suffered constant air raids, bombs being dropped all around them. Now imagine you're de- digging in an open field to plant a flower garden or something, and you hit with your shovel something that is round and cylindrical that is beneath the dirt. Clank. Now it could just be an old tin can, right? Or it might be an unexploded bomb. Which are you going to assume it is until you know for sure? Right? You better assume that it's an unexploded bomb until you're sure. Because if it's true, if that's what it is, then it needs to be treated with a great deal more respect than a Tim can. And your life depends upon it. Now, Jesus is not a a bomb waiting to blow you up. In fact, it's just the opposite. His claims are claims of hope, not destruction. But if you would treat that kind of metal in a field with that level of respect, then how much more should you treat the one who claims to be the very creator of the universe and who offers you perfect security, perfect safety, and perfect joy for all eternity? Ought you not to approach your investigation with a bit of humility? And before you just reject this Jesus as a tin can, be really, really sure about who he is and to be sure you're right. Who are you? For some people, that can be a pretty stressful question. May I suggest, though, that it's actually significantly less stressful for us if we allow ourselves to be defined first by how Jesus defines himself? In other words, if I let his identity be the basis of ours? Because If Jesus is this promised Messiah, then it means we have a Savior and a Rescuer so that fear no longer has any power over us. If Jesus is the incarnate Son of Man, it means that we're able to live live our lives without the stress and the pressure of living a perfect life because He was that perfect man for us. If Jesus is the eternal Son of God, then it means that He holds the final the the final power over our death and, and the final hope of resurrection if he is in fact the son of God who died on our behalf. And if he is the reigning king, then it means that he sits in perfect control over all of our lives. And so all of the stress, all the anxiety, all the grief, it means he reigns over all of it. The stress and the anxiety of defining our own identity becomes significantly easier when we accept who Jesus is. That's where we start. And even in those moments when we aren't sure what he's doing, it means that we can trust his promise that he'll come again and that he'll make everything in this world right again. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for laying out in front of us so clearly who this Jesus is that we come to worship, that we depend upon for our salvation and for our rescue. Thank you, Lord, for working in history and to make this so, for sending Jesus into the world, for his willingness to accept the suffering, the pain, the judgment of the human court so that we do not need to face the judgment of the heavenly court. And so, Lord, we pray that this news would transform our lives, that our identity may be rooted in him. We pray in his name. Amen.